Hey, everybody. Welcome to the So Far Unnamed podcast. Our current thought is taps and patience due to a little incident from earlier this week. But right now we're unnamed. We will have a name in the future. I am AJ Huff of Design the Everything, and I am here with Harry of Precision Ingenuity. Hi. So uh, what's going on this week, AJ? So I've been working on a couple things. Um, most of them, actually, just about all of them are leading up to my upcoming Kickstarter for the carabiners. Right now, today, I was working on a robot to stress test my carabiners. A robot. That actually sounds ro- like a ton of fun. By, and by robot, I mean like a pneumatic cylinder on a frame. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of figured uh, it was something like that. With, with the theory being it's just going to press the, the carabiner over and over and over again until it breaks or doesn't break. Hey, it's the simplest of robots, but we'll count it. <laughs> so uh, do you, uh, do you, are you going to connect it to an Arduino and like go a specific amount of cycles? Like how are you planning on controlling it? I have not really gotten that far yet. The Right now I'm just focusing on the mechanical portions. I'm thinking I may just do a simple timing relay that activates a solenoid every like second or every two seconds. And then okay. sit a camera in front of it in time-lapse mode. And if I know how frequently it's firing the solenoid, and then I can watch the time-lapse to see if and when the carabiner breaks and just get an idea of the general number of cycles. Awesome. Do you have, do you have any experience with Arduinos or any of that stuff? I, I honestly don't know. I have a little bit, but it's like five years out of date. Fair enough. Yeah, I, it's actually kind of funny you bring um, you bring up some robot automation. We actually got a, a fiber laser here recently, and uh, I, I'm looking at automating it for um, tag production. So in my area, there is a ton of business involved with making these literal electrical tags. So um, we have a lot of chicken in chicken production in this in this uh, part of Arkansas. And all of the companies that do millwright work and electrical work for them, they have to have tags. And to the best of my knowledge, they all hate doing them because they have these giant five by 10 um, lasers for cutting up sheet metal. But they kind of are really bad at doing um, engraving on stuff. They can do it, but it, it usually doesn't look the best and it usually can wear off. In addition to the nesters, the guys that are actually doing the programming for that laser, they'll spend two or three days just writing tags, and they absolutely hate it. So we got a fiber laser for doing some gun part stuff, and I want to see if there's any way I can automate it where I can load a tag, engrave it, and then push it off the table. So is, we'll see is how it that a goes. unique? Is it a unique engraving every time, or is it just like 001, 002, no. 003? No, it, uh, that's what makes it so hard for the nesters is that they'll get an Excel sheet that has 500 unique um, mm-hmm. unique tags and they'll have three or four lines of unique text on every tag. So almost nothing is the same from tag to tag. You might have like one where the top line's the same for the first five tags and then the next line down is different and then the next line down is different and so on. And so what would make this system work the best is if I can have a way of importing an Excel sheet, writing the text automatically, importing it from that Excel sheet, writing it onto the tag 
and have a system where the laser writes and says, okay, I'm done. It talks to like an Arduino or Raspberry Pi, which then moves the tag over. And then it says, okay, new tags in place and then pings the computer. And they kind of talk back and forth until all your tags are done. But um, right now I'm still in the state phase of seeing if that's something that even anyone around here is interested in. This is just something that I've kind of come up with like, if I can find enough people that I could market this to, there could be something here, but they might all just want to keep it in house for all I know. So we'll see. Mm -hmm. It, let's see, it wouldn't be that hard to automate the tag image generation right now in Airtable, I use it to print labels for my free sticker of the month club. Mm -hmm. And so a user fills out a, a form online and that populates my, my Airtable document. And then from there, I can just open up what they call the page designer and mm -hmm. hit print. And it'll generate a shipping label for everybody. That's and cool. so if you can convince the page designer to give you a format that you might be able to use with the laser, you could generate all of your files that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have, a, I have a friend who I used to go to school with here locally. And uh, he's a programmer for his day job. And so he's uh, offered to help me out with some of the, the programming on the back end side. So okay. we've done some testing and there's some, uh, there's some libraries out there for connecting to these lasers on GitHub. Mm. So we're playing around with that to see what we can do to connect to it. To, that way we can, because it's got two different softwares, uh, EasyCAD 2 and um, Lightburn. Yep. And both of those softwares um, are great for what they do, um, but I haven't found a way to automatically generate text without doing some kind of a weird macro where I, you know, take something in, use a macro to put that on the screen, and then use the macro to start the laser, which could be done. There's, I mean, it could be done, but if I can get away from those softwares, I think it'd be a lot more computer efficient. Yeah. Can you use... Can you use G code generated in a program like fusion? If it was a gantry style laser, yes, mm. but it is a Galvo style laser. And those apparently use some unique code to control them. You have to download Galvo specific drivers to run them. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cause like I've done a couple products or projects that have automatically generated and like cycled parameters in fusion and spat mm -hmm. out G. Um, like you, did you ever see the, the random randomized whiskey cubes? No, no, I didn't. So that was back on my, my first Tormach. Um, I had code that would go through and, randomize the design on each side of a of a of a whiskey cube like a stainless steel whiskey cube so that every side would be unique and it was just choosing random numbers and like placing a spiral in different spots Interesting. and then i would just rotate through the six different sides that's really cool actually i mean you you seem to do a lot with the uh setting up a model to be automated i mean i remember when you did the was it the parametric um pry, bar, pry bars mm-hmm those were really cool how you had those set up. So I was, yeah. I was pretty impressed. I, so like 
when it comes down to like what I'm actually good at, like if you look at all the stuff I do for design, the everything, the thing I'm actually the best at is CAD. I started doing mm-hmm. CAD when I was like, I don't know, maybe 12. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember convincing my mom to buy my dad some CAD software as like a, a birthday present. Um, and then I okay. just played with it the whole time. <laughs> That's awesome. Turbo CAD. Then I eventually upgraded to, uh, I went from that to SketchUp. And then in college, I got, I learned Katia and then Inventor and then Fusion. Nice. <laughs> well, that's quite the, quite the CAD journey. I don't have quite the same experience. Uh, I didn't really touch CAD until I was in college. So, mm-hmm. um, but I definitely had some kids that I went to school with that were like, coming in as freshmen and they knew how to do everything. And they like, I remember one time when I was very, very early on, I hadn't even done 3d CAD. I was playing in 2d CAD and I'm sitting here drawing lines of 2d CAD trying to make like a ISO view of something. And the guy next to me is modeling a a jet in 3d. And I'm just like, you can do that. (laughs) (laughs) So that was, that was very early on. It was, it was pretty funny to, to look over and go, okay, I got a lot of growing to do in this area. <laughs> How did you get started in machining? So my machining background is, it's pretty much come from YouTube. So um, my family as a background is into cabinetry. So my grandfather started a business where they made uh, cabinets and they shipped coast to coast. And my dad worked up there for many years. And so um my background's more on the wood side of things, but I, it, the wood never really interests me. It, it seemed too imprecise for my engineering driven brain. Um, and what really got me interested in, in like metal type stuff was restoring tractors with my grandfather. Mm. And I used to do that for many years growing up when I was in grade school, all the way up through high school. And, um, Never really connected the dots to machining, um, connected it more to engineering. And then when I went to engineering school, um, while I was in school, I started watching stuff like Grimsmo and John Saunders. Those were really the main two. Um, this old Tony some and um, uh, a couple other ones. Um, and I always thought that it was like really cool and something that I would love to play around with at some point in my life. And then I started manufacturing stuff. Like after I graduated, I uh, became a mechanical engineer and, and went to work at a, a place that made um, all kinds of stuff for the chicken industry. And I started getting really interested in starting my own business. And the thing that interested me was when I was designing stuff and sending it down to the machinist to machine, he had no experience with CAD or CAM and he was programming mm-hmm. it on the machine. And so there were several times when I would, I'd ask for something to be done. He'd be like, oh, it can't be done, you know. And I'd be <laughs> like, um, well, you know, there's this cool thing called CAD CAM. And like, have you thought about doing this or that? And he's like, I've been doing this for 25 years and no one's ever done that. <laughs> and I was just like, but would it work? <laughs> and so, and there was a lot of other machine shops that we would send work to around here. And they all kind of... <sighs> They all, at least on the outside looking in, didn't seem like they always knew what they were doing. Like we sent some square shafts once to the shop and it had snap ring grooves that it needed Mm -hmm. to have cut in it. 
and they didn't have the tool for it. So they just took a hacksaw while it was spinning on a manual lathe <laughs> and just cut the grooves in that way. Oh, gosh. And it was just like, really? Like, you're going to do that? And so it's it just... Now, there is some really good machine shops around here. As I've started off on my own and, and started like looking around to see what's in the area, I found out that there is some really good ones, but they're really have almost no presence on the internet and they have hyper-focused in the area so much that um, like they won't even talk to you because you're mm-hmm. not one of their customers. So because of that, when I was at that other job, I could never find them because they, they were pretty much already full and had their own things that they'd specialized in and, and wouldn't do anything for us anyways. So, yep. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about like, our businesses and like, I have a mm-hmm. question for you that I want, want your feedback on something I've been considering. Okay. Should I start doing zometry work? Should I make the test part? Should I start taking parts from the job board? Should I make that part of my business or should I just focus on like my products? My temptation for going to zometry, I should say is like, like right now, you know, I've been working on this carabiner for, I don't know, a couple of months and except for selling some early like beta prototypes, they, they haven't made me a penny. Like they're just consuming money and zometry would be a good way that I could get cash flow, but at the expense of, of focus and specializing. So what I would say there is that zometry, if you're looking for cash flow, unless you have the right type of machine, you're not going to make good money. So for example, we, we both have a Tormach 1100 MX. Um, there is so many people that have the same capabilities of that Tormach 1100MX. It's, you know, it's a great machine for what it is, but when you're on a, a site like Zometry, you're competing with guys that have Mazax, Haas, Doosan, all that other stuff. And, you know, they can make the same part that might take us 30 minutes to an hour in, you know, one to five minutes. Mm-hmm. And so the pricing structure kind of reflects that. And, you know, let's see here. We've been on it for, we've done almost 50 jobs and we've been on it since November of last year. So not quite a full year. Um, and we've done about $15,000 worth of work through it in total. Now that's $15,000 in revenue. So that doesn't include material tooling or any of those other expenses that come out of that. Now what Zometry has been great for, for us is it has allowed us to tool up. So it pays for, like, we, we take a job and that job pays for the tooling and the material. And by the time we're done with it, we haven't really made much, but we've bought everything that we needed for that job and that job has paid for that new equipment. Um, and then the other thing it's been really good for is that it allows us to take on work that is new and different. And so... I can look at a job and I can go, man, I've never done XYZ style part before. Um, I think I can do it. I, I have, you know, confidence level. Let me give it a shot. And we haven't failed anything yet, but I'd be lying if I said I haven't been out there till almost midnight some nights trying to <laughs> yep. get get stuff done. We've never shipped late, um, but it has also forced us to become a better machinist overall. My my quality of my work has skyrocketed since the time I started on with Zometry just because it has 
it, it holds you to a standard and forces you to check everything and make sure you are making the type of parts that you think you're making. And, and yeah. in those respects, it has been priceless because it, it's given me more confidence to take on work. And it's also given me a little bit of caution to take on some stuff that I was like, man, I thought I could really dominate on this. But, uh, it, you know, it, it helps you find the limitations of your machine real quick if you take on more than you can handle. Yep. So Okay. And I mean, to be fair, I I need to get better as a machinist. Like, you know, I'm good at CAD. I've never really claimed to be a great machinist. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it'll it'll force you to do that. And and, you know, there's been times where I've made pretty good money on it. But honestly, like in the last month, I've had some local jobs where I have basically made the same amount that I made in Zometry over almost a year and about two or three weeks just with local work. So it, with a lot less stress and um, with a lot higher uh, dollars per hour. So um, in that respect, that being said, we have started taking on some lathe work and that, that seems to be less saturated than the mill side. I think there's okay. a lot more people on the mill side of Zometry than there are on the lathe side of Zometry. So that's my thoughts on it so far, you know, and I, I've heard other people, I've watched other people that have done zometry work. And I think up until about 2018, 2019, anytime before that zometry was amazing uh, for the, the, the money that was being generated for the types of parts that you were being asked to make. But as that gets saturated, it's kind of like the first people on YouTube versus people that get on it like 10, 15 years later, and it's just a lot harder to get to the same level. Yep. So. So, so what would you that, tell me? So, so as so my advice to you would be, if you're looking at it for cash flow, I would not recommend. If you're looking at it as something to pay for uh, tooling and to expand your skills. It's provided you don't take on work that's more than you know you can handle. Um, it can be a great opportunity. And there is some side benefit stuff that um, we haven't taken advantage of yet, but that could happen. Um, so they'll they'll actually train you um, and, and educate you into becoming, what is it, like ISO 9000? Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Um, with the stipulation that once you've become trained on it, you accept a certain amount of jobs from them. For them to justify that you them training you for that. So like there's some benefits in there beyond just the financial, um, some certification stuff that you can get through them. Um, and, and they will they will upfront the cost of that training and that certification, provided you are willing to do X amount of work or X amount of jobs. I forget, I don't know which it is, but so there are some other benefits in there. So do you think like are there, how do I word this? How much atypical equipment does it take to get you above the rest of the pack? Like I have a fourth axis. Is that enough to really make an, enough of a difference? Or does everybody have a fourth axis? If I buy nope. that little pocket NC uh, five axis, like their new five axis with a high speed spindle, like is that enough to find high pain work? Like where's well, the that's, line? That's kind of what I've been looking at. Honestly, I've been looking at getting there that the pocket uh, their new 
CNC they're working on specifically for Zometry work, just because um, like once you get over a certain point, I feel like you can ask for more money and get it more often than not. Um, and, but for, for Zometry in, in particular, I feel like if you had a Datron Neo, uh-huh. you could dominate on Zometry. There is a lot of plate work that comes through Zometry that I just go, man, if I had a, like a Neo or a Neo-like machine, man, you could, I think you could do really well on Zometry with something like that. Um, as for fifth axis work, there's a lot of big fifth axis work. There is some small stuff, um, but honestly, you're, you with a fourth axis would be able to take on a bigger chunk of work um, than I could just by having that. It's so hard to it's so hard to say what equipment you need because there's so much random stuff that comes through and some of the stuff that comes through uh-huh. you look at and you go, I pity the machinist that's going to try to make this part because because uh, whoever drew this up really hated the machinist. Yeah. So, but I, I you know I I know there's other platforms that are kind of following the Zometry model. And I would be more interested in finding one of those that is starting up and is less saturated. Um, because I think if I was going for just straight up cash in that area, um, I would definitely look towards that. Um, for us, Zometry has turned less into a revenue generating thing and more into a man, we don't got anything to do right now. We need something to keep the spindle running. It's not going to make us much, but it's better than nothing. Is there anything simple that we can get to throw on? And I, I feel like that's probably what more people use it for than anything, than than as their sole money generator um, these days. But I could be wrong. Well, I know like the guys at Cerven, Cerven Solutions, and all they do is Zometry job. They no, have really. a Sil X7, and they just do Zometry stuff. And it seems to be working for them. I know they said they did say for like their first year, they did not make much money because they were just, you know, buying tooling and, you know, fixturing and everything to be able to do it. But now that they have that stuff, they are starting to make money. Yeah. And part of the problem that we might have more than anything, honestly, is that um, it kind of goes back to that specializing idea, which we as a business are doing horribly right now because we take on almost anything. And the same thing kind of applied to how we looked at Zometry. If it was anything that we felt like we could remotely take on, we did. So uh, copper jobs, aluminum jobs, stainless steel jobs, steel jobs, um, titanium jobs. I mean, um, haven't really done any plastic yet. Um, kind of held off on those for now. But And then we would do, you know, big parts, small parts, flat parts, parts of odd shapes and I think if you we've confused the algorithm so much now that it just mm-hmm. gives us random stuff and doesn't really know what we do per se. And I think that's probably hurting us as well. I, I wish I could just like reset the algorithm and then try to focus into one area and see if the algorithm on the Zometry would like give us more of those tiles parts. That way we could do better. Because I think you also said that um, those other guys, um, they get mostly plastic parts on their job board now. Is that correct? Do they? They, 
I I don't know that specifically. Um, okay. When they had when they were doing it on a Tormach 440, I know that they were mostly taking plastic and copper parts, and I think they still do a lot of copper, and they're kind of specializing in that now, whether intentional or just like the feedback loop between you know we do copper algorithm gives us copper we do copper algorithm gives us copper mm-hmm. yeah or maybe i've just seen like two of their parts and they both happen to be copper and it's just like one percent of what they do i don't know i can't speak for them yeah what i'm trying to do with with zometry right now and i'm seeing if it works if it works it'd be awesome is i'm trying to go for simple high volume lathe parts because i know i can make good money on those and mm-hmm. if i can tune the algorithm to try to spit out more lathe style parts um, because we do have that Haas ST15 now. And so my ability to produce parts on that is 10 times as fast as what I can do on my, on my Tormach. And, yep. and so my ROI on that can, is a lot easier to get higher. Yeah. So one one of the big things that kind of scares me away from zom- from zometry is I can't share any of it. No. I'm like re- no. realistically right now my biggest my biggest um consistent income source is actually Patreon and YouTube. Yeah. And Yeah. Yeah. I've done some really cool stuff with zometry and I really was like, man, if I could post a photo of this right now, I know people would love it. Um and and that is one of the biggest downsides to zometry is that you can't share any of it. And yep. it just kills me inside a little bit whenever I make a, a really cool part. And it's like, all I want to do is share it. All I want to do is be like, look at X, Y, Z that I did. It's so cool, but I can't. Yep. And I mean, like I do some engineering work for a, a company that makes molds. Um, it, are you familiar with Ed Kramer and his Neo? Uh, yeah, a little bit. Okay, I designed the molds that he makes. Oh, really? Yeah, or at least That's some cool. of them. I'm not the only the only designer, but um, and like I, I don't know. It a lot of that's covered under NDAs, but also a lot of it gets shared on social media. So whatever. But um, wow, I don't remember where I was going with that. Oh yeah, I can't share that. I think that's the moral of the story. Yeah. So like I, I, I don't share everything I do. Yeah. Yeah, but you do a really good job with your with your daily vlogs um, uh, of getting people small updates, small consistent updates, um, and that's something that we haven't really posted anything to Instagram, um, Facebook, YouTube, anything like that, anything social media wise in several months now, um, and some of that has been done with the type of work we've done. We can't post some of it, and some mm-hmm. of it has been done with. Um, just we've been slowed down on the stuff that we want to post. Like yep. we've done a couple product stuff and I've had, I'm probably three or four months behind on the deck defenders. Like I, mm. I we did it. We did that deck defender um, Kickstarter campaign and yep. um, you helped us out some with that. And it, it turned out really good. There's definitely a lot we could have done better, but for what it is, it, it did really good. And we got really positive feedback. We got them all out. Um, but my first anodizer, um, I ran into some issues and it, it got delayed almost two months because of that. And then I'm on a new anodizer and, um, it, they kind of have like a six week turnaround. And so I sent some parts for testing, um, to make sure they were mm-hmm. good. They came back good. 
And so I sent my first batch and I should be getting my first batch back from him this week sometime. And so we really, really in our entire time that we've been in a business, we've only sold 40 products of our own. And that was on Kickstarter. Yep. We've, we've never had like anything that it's like, go to our website and buy, which is one of the main things that I started this business for. (laughs) Yeah. So now what about you? Um, Now you've, uh, I've been kind of keeping up with your carabiner sagas. Um, Is there anything that you haven't shared on any of your YouTube stuff that's uh, going on with that right now? Um, not that I can think of. I have a like sampling set of carabiners out to a guy for product photography. Mm-hmm. And that is like the last big thing, at least I think it is, for my Kickstarter. It, I, I have the campaign written. I have it all ready to go. I just need to dump those in. And then, oh, actually, no, there is one more big thing. And like this is kind of where my brain space has been at for the last couple of days. Is I need to figure out how I'm going to advertise this. Because okay. I want this, I want this carabiner Kickstarter to be at least two or three times bigger than my biggest previous Kickstarter, and okay. I would really like it to be ten times bigger. Okay. Which, so, so what kind of numbers are, is that? Like, how many, how many pre-sales? How many is or dollars? Like, how are you gauging that? So, my to hit my my goal for this year or for the next twelve months is I want to do four $20,000 Kickstarters and then have $20,000 of regular product sales. That's like what I'm working to right now. That's kind of my um, guiding light. Okay. And what's, so, your biggest, like, what's your biggest Kickstarter so far? Uh, it was the Parametric Pry Bar, which I believe was about $5,000. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So I need to, I need to 4X, basically. Yeah, I think you can do it. I think you can do it. I know right now, like if I launch doing everything the same, I've always the same way I always have done. I'm pretty sure I'd hit that five thousand dollars again. Mm-hmm. Um, what I'm doing, what I'm trying to figure out this time is the advertising. And I mm-hmm. talked to Tom of Infinite Craftsman, the creator of the Frog Pod, who just did a Kickstarter for thirty thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. I just talked to him about like. Like literally I had a two hour conversation with him about marketing and advertising and like he used one of those companies that specifically helps Kickstarters advertise. Really? Cause he I, did. I wondered if those things actually worked. So he had mixed feelings on them. Um, okay. I don't know. You can go watch that video whenever I finish getting it rendered, but basically he sold a bunch more units, but didn't make any more money on them because he paid for the advertising. So if, if I remember right, he like, what was it? He, it was something like he, he paid about $3,000 in total to get like $6,000 of sales. Um, and I think he, you know, between all, like he did a lot of, uh, prototyping and research development to get there and then he has to make them and yada, yada, yada. So I think he about broke even on my carabiners. I do have a much higher margin than him. Cause I'm planning on selling these wholesale. Mm-hmm. So if I, if I put in a dollar and get out $2, if I put in a dollar of advertising, get out $2, I'm winning. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, but I he also, noticed... go ahead. Sorry. Go on. 
No, no, you go ahead. I'll, I'll, I'll come in after. <laughs> okay. He did also say that he was even so. He he hit that number. He put in you know X dollars and he got two X dollars out in sales. He did also mention that like the ads that that company ended up using were terrible. Um, oh. they did not really do any creative design for him. They just like took his Kickstarter video and cropped it. Oh, yeah. And they took that much money just for that. Is it just because they posted it other places? Is that their justification? So the way they work on basically like um, time plus materials is the best way I can explain it. So they, you pay them for like the actual, you know, Facebook marketing. So if they spend a thousand dollars on Facebook ads, you pay them a thousand dollars for that, you know, obviously pretty simple. And then they take a 15% cut of all the sales that they bring in. Mm, I'm following. So their actual cut really wasn't that much. I mean, it was a couple hundred bucks. But all they really did was set up his Facebook campaigns for him and crop his videos. Yeah, that's not much. That's something you could easily do without going through that. The now, value. He... Sorry. Go the ahead. value of using a company like that is they have email lists uh, for targeting advertising. And that's yeah. what I don't have. Yeah. I was going to say, I've, I've seen a couple. There was one, I think they were called like Jello or something along those lines. Yep. yep. Um, Jellop or Jellop. Yeah. That That's one the company seems he to used. Ha- oh, that was. Yep. Oh, okay. I was going to say, that company seems to have a lot of really high value Kickstarter pages. So I, yeah. I, I thought about using that one. But interesting. I, I'm torn. Because so option one, well, option one is I do nothing and just see how it goes. Option two is I do my own ads. I set aside the same amount of money that I would pay them and then run it myself. And by doing that, I get some of the like the IP developed in terms of like building up those customer lists. And like when you do Facebook ads, you like Facebook learns the kind of people that click on your ads and you know, mm-hmm. adds them to a list for you. And then you can target those lists in the future. And that's where like the value is. And the, gotcha. the Jello people already have that built up and you're paying to get it. But if you do it yourself, then you you get that value. Gotcha. It's or, something you got to build over time. Yes. And it's expensive to build up. Yeah. I, I would say the only advantage would be for the for going with the paid advertiser. It'd be when you're first starting out and you don't have that list, getting your product, even if you're breaking even on it into as many hands as possible so they can spread the word um, will really help you for the next one. And then once you've got a decent sized following and you can go off of the paid advertisement and start doing your own stuff, um, that makes the most sense, at least to me. Um, Because that's one of the biggest problems we're having right now in terms of job shop stuff is just getting our name out there because no one knows we exist. And so it's probably a very similar idea with Kickstarter. Yeah. Except people go to Kickstarter trying to buy stuff and you don't really have a uh, arena where people come looking to buy stuff. They just go to Zometry. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Which we've actually, yeah. Which we actually have used Zometry sometimes when we're quoting stuff just to upload it and, see how how close we are (laughs) i bet that's fairly common 
Oh, I'm sure it is. Um, you know, there's there's been a couple times where I've uploaded stuff and then they've called me and I've been like, no, I, I wasn't I wasn't going to buy that. <laughs> and then they they haven't really called me since in a while. So <laughs> I've uploaded enough stuff without buying that they're like, OK, this guy's just time just using it. Yeah. Although I have I have toyed with the idea of if I bought stuff at a high enough volume um, to have Zometry produce it and a time in a time fashion that I couldn't produce it in. Like I've been interested in that. Like if I ever did a Kickstarter that was so big, like let's say I sold a million of something and mm-hmm. there was like no way I could get that many out in that much time, you know, would it make sense to lean on something like Zometry to augment your production capabilities? Maybe not make everything, but you know, is there stuff you could send to it that would um, speed that up? And, you know, I think as machinists, we don't like the idea of outsourcing. We want to do as much as we can in-house. But there is a there is a real power in finding people that can make things cheaper than you can and at yep. a rate faster than you can. And that's something I've personally struggled with because I, I, I love making as much stuff as I can. Yeah. Well, I I've had this thought before is would I be farther along if I took the, you know, about thirty thousand dollars that I have invested in my Tormach and instead just use other people to prototype like how much faster could i have gotten a carabiner out on the market yeah yeah i don't know those are those are hard questions yep and i think the answer i settled on was okay maybe i could do it you know better cheaper faster but it wouldn't be as fun and what's the point if it's if you're not enjoying it yeah that's that's true. I I enjoy uh, like I, there was a part that I can share that I made. So um, spoiler alert: we got our FFL, and so we can officially nice. start making guns, gun parts, and gun related items, um, which is exciting. Um, but I had a I had a walk in right around the time we got our FFL, and uh, he needed an adapter for a for a muzzle. He had a he had a a muzzle that he, from one gun, he wanted to stick on another. And, um, I designed it. It had internal and external threads and machined it all in one go on the lathe. And it spit out the part and it came off perfect on the first run. And then, um, I made a couple more because I adjusted a few things. Um, even though the first one fit, um, the threads looked a little, wonky and so mm-hmm. they worked but they didn't look right and so i just ran a couple more kind of dialing in the feeds and speeds and then once i got ha- once i was happy with that um we got our cerakote booth running about oh, the nice. same time and so i cerakoted it and it, it basically looks like a factory part and it makes Sweet. it makes it look like it like that's how he bought it and i was so happy and proud of that piece like i i shared it with so many of my friends that I was just like, look at this. And they're just like, cool story, bro. I'm like, no, you don't understand. I made it. <laughs> so yep. it's, it's, it's that kind of stuff that it, it's the whole reason I, uh, I wanted to do this in the first place is because I love, you know, coming up with an idea, modeling up, um, programming it on the computer, running it in the machine. Um, and then, sandblasting it, powder coating it or, or anodizing it or seracoding it, whatever. And then looking at a finished product and go, you know, this was just a thought in my brain. And I went, 
I did the whole process in one area and had a finished product when I was done. And like, it's just the coolest feeling in the world. And and that's something that that's where my, my heart is in the business. And that, and that's the kind of stuff that I just go nuts over. Yeah. I, and I feel like I had kind of lost some of that joy lately is like, you know, cause I've just been like troubleshooting the carabiners, troubleshooting mm-hmm. the carabiners, troubleshooting the carabiners. And I don't know how many of those I made before I got one that I was happy with. Um, and, and that's part of the process because, you know, if, if, if you're anything like me, would you first machine something and you made a box and it was, it might've been out of square cut on an angle. You didn't clean up all the sides, but you, gosh, darn it. I was the one that machined it. And it looks like the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my entire life. Like, as you progress in a machinist, you kind of go through these phases where it's like, man, I am just struggling, struggling, struggling. And then you conquer that thing. And then, and then you have a few really good wins and then you find something else that just starts kicking your butt and you're just struggling, struggling, struggling. And then, you know, it just kind of goes in a cycle for you. I would say you're, you're probably going through the cycle just because you've changed up your process and you're doing something you've never done before. Um, I mean, having a laser cut part and then machining that, um, that's a really unique challenge. And we actually did some laser cut parts here recently for a different company. And they said it's a bunch of blanks and it was a nightmare to machine. Mm-hmm. And so we were lucky because all we needed to do was like drill and tap a hole and cut a slot in it. But I mean... Every single, and I'm I'm guessing your parts came out better than the ones we did, but I mean, there was 20 thou plus or minus on all the parts. Yeah. So, you know, and they wanted us, they got mad at us for not hitting center on some of the test (laughs) parts. And I'm just like, your lasers cut parts are all over the place and you're expecting me to hold center line. Like, do I have to probe every single one of these when they're in my jaws to make sure they're on center? Like, this is, this is ridiculous. I can't run efficiently doing that yeah with the with the send cut send parts they were all like minus five in all of the dimensions so they were five thou under but with like if you adjusted for that they were plus or minus one okay so that's good that's real good yeah they were undersized but repeatable precise but yeah. not accurate <laughs> yeah well I, I would take that over over uh oh yeah <laughs> accurate but unprecise yeah yeah I, I would take that in a heartbeat um yeah it's i actually had a fun part that i just ran today i had a a, a guy that was a walk-in he wanted a couple bushings for a uh some bearings mm-hmm. and he wanted them to be a light press fit and measuring the idea of a bearing with calipers you know those things are to um tenths of an inch and to get most of your press fits they're in tenths of an inch and i don't have yep. anything that measures that precise and so i got it within a thou and the first one i pressed in i had to i was beating on it with a hammer and i could not <laughs> get it like i got it in there but and it was a press fit um, and then the second one, I took two tenths out of it on the diameter and it just slipped in. <laughs> Did it like they measured basically identical and it just slipped into the bearing and it was like, yep. 
it was it was like a really nice precision fit but it was like man and then i went back and i took one tenth out of it or, or put one tenth back into it and ran it again and it was just a perfect like you, you couldn't push it in by hand but you could just lightly tap it with the hammer and it just and i was just like man these are just tense and I've never been able to do anything like that on the Tormach. So being able to mm-hmm. do it for the first time on, on the, the Haas, I mean, it's, it's magical. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but I, 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 that machine can produce parts better than I can accurately measure consistently. <laughs> mm-hmm. So. So I've got some new tooling and a new process coming in. What a new pro- The process is in my head. The new tooling is coming in. And I okay. want to try out something. Have you ever have you ever done any tabbing off of a part with a slitting saw? So like machine the part and then tabbed it off from underneath with a slitting saw. I have I've used a slitting saw. I I don't well, I don't know if I have actually. I know I have one, but I don't know if I've ever. I don't think I've ever used it. I've wanted to, but I don't think I've ever used it. So, what you going to do with it? So I want to make some very small titanium flexure carabiners. Uh, mm-hmm. Basically, it'll re- like kind of halfway between like a keyring and like a quick quick disconnect. Like a keyring, mm-hmm. you can get your keys on and off easily. And I think I want to take titanium one inch diameter rod and stick it straight up, and then mm-hmm. mill a mill a carabiner out of it, and then slice it off like a piece of salami with the uh, the slitting saw, and then immediately go and machine the next one, and then slice it and machine it. And that- these things are only going to be like. A sixteenth, maybe an eighth of an inch thick, and so if you stick out a you know one inch diameter rod three inches, you get like quite a few salami slices off. So so, uh, hmm. I was thinking, it, could you cut enough to do two salami slices in a row? So like, if you come in with your end mill, could you go deep enough to to be able to do two cuts and get two? Uh, potentially, I, I think the majority of that part, I shouldn't say the majority of it. A lot of that part is going to be, because a lot of that part is going to be machined with a one thirty second inch end mill. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to go too deep with a tool that small. Yeah, that makes sense. That one's going to be a fun one. I, I think that one will be really cool for a lot of people. Um, are you planning on using a traditional end mill or are you planning on using like a, um, high feed end mill. Um, I have been using the high feed mills for my, my current carabiners, but that's a, mm-hmm. a one twenty diameter tool. And like, they're kind of hard to find smaller than that. I've never seen a one thirty second inch high feed mill. You should, there was a video and granted, neither one of us have a, a spindle that can go over 10,000 RPM, <laughs> yeah. but, um, Grimsmo, he had a, a video on high feed end mills. Did you ever watch that one? I probably did, but it forgot. It w- it was one of the first times I've I've seen some of that high feed stuff, and it was really cool. But he he had I want to say it was like a one thirty second or smaller. It hmm. was whatever th- whatever he uses to slot his um the bar that holds your your knife. The okay um, the lock bar. Yeah, the lock bar. Um. Whatever he was using to to put that slot through, he was using a traditional, and he got a high feed, and it, and he was turning it at like 
thirty to fifty thousand RPM, yeah. whatever that thing does. Current RPMs. And, yeah, yeah, current RPMs. <laughs> and uh, his machine time actually went down, even though he was taking a much smaller cut. Yeah. Um, and he at one point he um, gets some chips on his fingers and sticks it in a microscope, and you you know you like zoom in, you can see like chips stuck in like his fingerprint uh-huh <laughs> like like the, the grooves of your finger like is so tiny it's like sawdust I'll, I'll definitely have to go rewatch that uh i am having tool life issues with my high feed mills um, okay my my first one lasted about 25 carabiners and then my second one lasted about 10 and i think i think the the 10th one came loose and like vibrated it to death but even still like you know, 25 carabiners for a $40 tool isn't exactly where I want to be. I know that the smaller you're tooling, the more you have to make sure it's on center because mm. a thou or two of deflection on a tool that's a 32nd in diameter or a 16th in the diameter is, you know, like five to 10%. Yeah. Or whatever. And these, so like these ones are, they're just under eighth inch. They're one twenty. 120 thou. And I just got a brand new uh, Mara tool uh, end mill holder, like a set screw holder. So mm-hmm. that should have pretty good run out. I didn't, I didn't actually measure, but theoretically it has good run out. Yeah. Speaking on, on measuring that kind of stuff. Um, do you have some nice measuring tools to actually measure um, like how much run out you actually have on any of your stuff? Yeah, I have a Minitoyo uh, tenths test indicator. Okay, that is awesome. I have nothing of the sort. Okay, uh, <laughs> I have the uh, the Noga knockoff arm that came with the 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 Tormach, and it has whatever knockoff brand of indicator mm-hmm. on the end of it on a spring tab arm that, with the twisty screw to yeah. try to set it at the tip and. I was trying to use that to indicate in some tool holders on my lathe and I was getting like plus or minus seven or eight thou off center. And I was like, this is insane. Yeah. And so I went and uh, borrowed some um, indicators from my local machine shop and put it in there. And I'm like, okay, this is less than the thou. I think my, huh. I think my indicator, because like when, when I was rotating my indicator, I was rotating it. Um, with the sticking out, and so mm-hmm. it was rotating around the the part, and when it was going on the underside, that spring had so much flex in it. Yeah, that like and gravity, that gravity, gravity alone was just moving that indicator, uh, and so I was getting inaccurate measurements all over the place. Everything um, is rubber. <laughs> everything is rubber. <laughs> oh my! I I listened to that one too. That was uh, was that with intolerance <laughs> that did that. Um, I know that phrase from, uh, Robin Renzetti. Oh, okay. I was just listening to, uh, uh, within tolerance podcast here a couple days ago. They're talking about, um, diamond turn machining. Mm-hmm. And he used yep. that same phrase. Everything is rubber. And I was like, it's, yeah. it's true. Like the tighter you get on everything, it's just, everything moves. <laughs> Have you watched the Robin Renzetti videos? Uh, is is that the one with the uh, the air bearing 
Sheen or Robert Renzetti? Um, Which one is that? So Robin Renzetti is kind of a more older gentleman who does super high precision stuff. Um, like yeah, he dude. was working on a spindle for his grinder or like a, a rotary table, whatever you want to call it, where he was getting the run out and like parallelness and flatness down to millionths. Yeah. Yeah. He was the one that did the, the air bearing like granite custom lathe and was that him? Maybe. I'm not, it's not ringing a bell, but maybe. Cause he, he was talking about going to the millionth and he, he used an example where he had uh, a two cylinders and the inner cylinder he could cap off to not let air escape and he'd he'd spin it and it was riding on air mm. it was like to a millionth and it was just like there's nothing special about these parts other than the the precise air gap between the two yeah. of them that won't let them separate but it can spin freely and they're not touching and he puts like a electric thing to show that they're not conducting electricity like crazy stuff crazy stuff you if you, I don't know if we're talking about the same person. I I haven't watched his stuff recently enough to remember if he did do that. Go Google him or YouTube him, Robin Renzetti, okay. if you can spell it because I can't. Um, he has like a great series on rebuilding spindles, precision spindle rebuilding and stuff. Gotcha. Mm, I can't say that I've seen this guy. Oh, you need to watch that, all of his stuff like immediately. Yeah, I'm going to. If you want wife's gonna hate precision you. machining stuff. Um Okay. Yeah, I'm gonna have to watch this guy. Yes, you should. So I have this tendency to get excited about things and then ask everybody questions about them. And you, you caught okay. a little bit of this madness today. I really want a laser. Yeah. And I want all the lasers and I'm having a hard time deciding if I should, which one I should get. Should I get the little one that's cheap now and use it and then get the big one if I decide to later? Should I get, just get the one that does everything I want to do for, for your average machinist? They, I don't, they might not have the same magic in their eyes when they see one, but as, as someone who's designing their own products or trying to lasers are magical and they can do some really cool stuff. Um, and we've, I was playing, playing around with our new laser and it it is so wild. The, image quality you can get out of it when you're marking stuff. Um, I had a, a job that came in this week and it was a, a, a sign that they wanted engraved and I was testing it out on like a one inch by one inch square. And it just, even at that scale with all the details shrunk down, it still looked phenomenal. And so I just, it's so cool. So cool. Yeah. The basically the one I was looking at was it has like a 40 by 63 inch bed and it was 150 watts. It won't do won't do any sort of metal, won't mark metal uh, unless you're like burning powder coat off to engrave. But I don't know. I'm torn. Yeah. 
Now, um, packaging wise, um, how could you use one of those? Because like, I've you like, do you have a do you have a 3D printer? I'm assuming. Do you have a 3D yes, printer? I do. Did you use it much around your shop? Not as much as I would like. Um, I have one that like my my better one is at well my day job which i'm now part-time at and i don't know i used to use it a lot and i've kind of fallen off and then i have another one at home that's kind of crappy i would use it more if i had a nicer one i think okay well if it's anything like our 3d printer um we use that for everything around the shop it, it's almost always running working on something whether it's a, a test a test print to see if we like the fitment and stuff before we machine it out or if it's um, tool organization. Um, I've actually used it a lot for work holding um, in the mill and in the lathe. Um, you know, those uh, laser cut parts, I made a, a jig that could hold eight of them at a time in a vise. And because they were 3D printed, they could take up some yep. of that some of that variation and uh, it, it came out great and they held up um, through everything. So I was very impressed, but with a CO2 laser, um, I would be interested in to see what I could do on the packaging side of making my own custom packaging um, for products. And um, could you buy like cardstock that's been printed and then, laser it out to shape like my the way i would use it for packaging is i would just get a big sheet of cardboard put it in there and then you know cut out some shapes and like really all i need is just a flat piece of cardboard that the carabiner will go onto it'll either like clip onto it or zip tie on mm -hmm. and then you can just hang that on a rack at a, a store okay are you looking on and i'm putting it so when you when you say stick it inside it, are you just making a single sheet? Are you putting a barcode? Are you putting any uh, labels or anything? I would, put, I would put a sticker onto the cardboard. Okay. Yeah. I mean, we ordered some custom packaging a while ago for our um, our uh, deck defenders when we did the Kickstarter. And it ended up costing a dollar or two a box, um, which we were lucky because it was a really small box and it was full color. Um, so that was really cool. But I wasn't as impressed with the quality from that particular company as I mm -hmm. thought I would be. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, if you did your own packaging, you could I, I feel like you could become pretty you could do some pretty special things as you played around with it over time that could make you stand out instead of going with the same type of packaging everyone else is doing. Um have you have you listened to the audiobook uh or read the book um what is it? Uh Be Different or Think Different or something different. Um, is it it's by, who by not Mike McCallowitz. Oh yeah. It's like think differently. Something. Yes. I've listened to that. Yeah. I, I was just listening to that one. I I was 
driving around this week, this last weekend on a, on a long trip and I was listening to it and, you know, his whole deal was, you know, if you can stand out and be different from everyone else around you, sometimes that's, that's enough to push you over the edge to, to get, to do better. And that's honestly something I've been thinking about for our business, trying to figure out how we can be different to try to attract customers. But um, in terms of packaging, that laser could allow you to be different in your packaging if you could come up with some unique ideas that uh, and prototype some ideas to, to stand out. Yeah. Um, my other thought process for, I have a couple of thought process for the laser, um, but in terms of prototyping too, a lot of my products are, in fact, I think everything right now starts as a laser cut part and then is machined down. And it's like, well, if I can, you know, very quickly go through 10 different iterations of a, a titanium lanyard hook just to get an idea of shape and feel, you know, that would save me a lot of, of time. And like when you're not hindered by your tools, like you can be more creative. That is very true. As as we have grown in capabilities, our our ability to come up with unique things and, and take it all the way from idea to prototype. It goes back to that whole adapter for that muzzle adapter thing. Like being able to because I three D I, I designed it, I three D printed it, I test fit everything and then programmed it, machined it, coded it. Like the ability to do all that stuff in rapid succession is amazing uh, for for product development. Man, you're gonna talk me into buying a laser. <laughs> I I found that there is a slightly older model, like one year older, is mm-hmm. sixty nine hundred instead of eighty seven plus shipping. Sixty nine hundred mm-hmm. with free shipping. Yeah, it's mm. it'll cut three quarter inch plywood in one pass. You can make shop furniture. I, I know what you need to do. I, I know what you need to do. You need to you need to say that if you can reach a certain goal, like you you said you want to get twenty thousand dollars on your Kickstarter campaign, right? Yep. You want, you want to do five of those, four or five of those a year. Um, you should say you should try to force yourself to go a little bit higher than that, and and use that uh, laser <laughs> as your as your as the goal that's going to drive you there. If I hit twenty six thousand, then I get a laser. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> the other option is I spend eighteen hundred dollars and get a perfectly capable but much smaller laser. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, it's you're you're so close to getting your your current Kickstarter going that I would I personally I would suggest waiting until at least that one is done. Yeah, um, and, and using that as a gauge for if you can afford to get the nicer one or. Uh, go the uh, more economy route. Yeah, that's uh, the conclusion I came to myself. Yeah, as as much as it hurts to <laughs> to leave that potential sitting out in the ether, waiting for you to to finish up that, um, that's probably the the wiser thing to do. Yep. And focus is something that I'm kind of notoriously bad at in business. Like I have so many things that I want to do and honestly things that are more exciting to me right now than carabiners. And I don't know. Should I give you one of my ideas? This is one of my, this is my, if design the everything doesn't pick up this business idea. Okay. 
I want to do end mills for that are specifically designed for less rigid machines. Things like Shape Ocos and uh, uh, Nomads, Pocket NCs, etc. Okay. It'll be I, like... I think... Go ahead. Right, let me finish my pitch. Single, there'll be single fluid end mills that are like... They have a half diameter or maybe one diameter of flutes on the end. And then a relief shank of like three or four diameters. And so that way that's like a super, super rigid tool, almost like a feed mill, because on mm-hmm. those machines, you don't use more than, you know, a hundred or 10 thou or 20 thou flutes anyway. I, I, I like the idea. The only thing that I would, would wonder is how in the world are you going to get something like that produced? Oh, you... That's super easy. Um, there's all kinds of companies that grind end mills. Like you can get them made in China. You could get them made by like Lakeshore Carbide. I guess. I, I I guess I've I personally don't have much experience. I'm my whole experience in life up to this point has been mostly anything that I want my I have to design and make myself. So mm-hmm. I am horrible at finding people to actually manufacture something for me. And yeah. so. Um, to me, that sounds crazy, but if, I mean, I, I know there's people that do that kind of stuff all the, all the time. Amazon's full of stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> See, that's how most products nowadays are made is somebody goes, eh, I want to make a slightly better sock. And so they go yeah. to China, they find somebody who makes socks. They, you know, change the thread and the color or whatever. And they're like, these are my socks now. I make these. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. They, I mean, there's tons of people that do it. Um, I have no experience with it. And I'd love to learn um, because there are definitely products that we've thought up that, um, you know, would be real easy to send to someone else. And I'm sure they could make it for a tenth of the price that we can make it for. But I have a hard time of letting go of things once I start making them. Yeah. <laughs> no, I get it. Then you start looking at margins and like, mm. well, for, for me, I, I've always enjoyed the game of making them and then seeing how much I can get done in like a single cycle and how yeah. fast can I get it? The optimization. Like I, I enjoy all that stuff too much to hand it off to someone else and be like, make me a million of these. Like, no, I can, I can do it. <laughs> so, <laughs> And then I can justify getting the hundred thousand dollar new machine or the, yeah. or, you know, maybe, Maybe 10 years down the line, my third or fourth Kern, and then I can compete with John Grimsmill. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I've got a question for you. And this is going back like 10 topics. Okay. So we were talking about Zometry and how there's a bunch of plate work on there. And if you had a Neo, it would be great for Zometry. What does the Neo do? Like what kind of plate work? Like what? Hmm, how do I word this? Why do you need a Neo? Why can't you just have like a Tormach with some mod vices? Like what is that missing that the Neo has that the Tormach doesn't? For me, the plate work and, and, and I guess if you had a vacuum plate on your Tormach, um, you'd be able to better compete. Um, Cause that's one thing that I've looked at doing was getting the Pearson work holding uh, smart back two or mm-hmm. smart back three. I think he's on now. 
um, for the Tormach. Um, but the reason I like the Neo over just doing that is a couple reasons. With my Tormach in particular, I've noticed that when I move the um, x-axis from one extreme to the other extreme, it's really hard for me to keep accurate Z parts, mm. accurate parts in the Z dimension. Um, I get almost three to four thou of deflection from one extreme to the other with like a, like a parabolic pattern as the weight of the table shifts on yeah. the gips. And I've, I've, I've tried tightening it up. I've tried playing around with it. I've got it down to about a, a thou or two at best. Um, but it, 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 it's been a challenge trying to, trying to get accurate on long parts like that. And that's just built in error. That doesn't include any error from clamping or anything else that I would do. And so for plate work, um, anything that's less than a quarter inch, um, and it's bigger than four or five inches. Um, I just don't touch anthometry anymore because I've, I've done it. Um, but I've hit my head against the wall and like had to like go in with a fly cutter and cut and then just make sure, check everything, reclamp it, like find the high spot and try to clip it down and, and, mm. and, and like made like 10 different plate parts trying to get one that's good. And with, and the other reason I like the Neo is cause it's got that smart back. So you don't have to perfectly gasket around them. Yeah. And a lot of the stuff on Zometry, um, at least on the plate side that I've seen, you don't really have more than 10 parts most of the time. And so for the smart back with that, uh, that, that vacuum card, you could just set a part down, touch it and then go. And if you're drilling and tapping holes and whatnot, I feel like it wouldn't be a problem on the Neo versus having to make a custom gasket fixture every time if you're using a, a Pearson Smartback. Mm-hmm. Um, now I have used the super glue tape method. That's honestly how I fixed most of the problems that I used that, that, that I've run into. Um, but then it's like, I usually have to wait about 15 minutes in between glue ups to actually yep. run it to make sure everything's cured. And it's just, you know, you're wasting so much time doing that. You know, if like, for example, if I have a plate that's, you know, say, four by eight inches and a quarter inch thick Zometry might pay me $120 or a hundred dollars for that part. You know, and I spend, let's say 20 or $30 in material for that part. And then I end up spending three hours between um, sticking a plate in there, decking it down, doing my first glue and tape up, putting it down, trying to make sure it's perfectly centered and then waiting for the glue to dry, machining everything, trying to check it while it's in place as best as I can, then flipping it over, doing all of that a second time. And that's assuming it's just a two up two side part. And then I'm, I'm an hour or two into it, not including programming. And then you got inspection that you got to do. And on some of those plate parts, my goodness, there's some that have like 40 tapped holes in with geometry. You have to check every single hole on every single part and you have to mm. do an inspection sheet 
And so when you get up there and tapped holes, it might not be that big of a deal to program, but boy, is it a pain to try to measure all those things out. So you got to do all that. And by the time you're done, man, I'm making like $20, $30 an hour. Um, and there's just more efficient ways that it can be done that like, make me not want to have to mess with that. Like I, I don't, I don't want to fight it for like, unless I'm doing absolutely nothing and I can usually find something to keep me busy. Um, I don't, I just, I've just gotten to the point where it's like, I don't want to mess with, with plate work on the Tormach. Like there's better yeah. machines that can do it. And it makes a lot more sense to do them on those machines versus the Tormach. It's a great machine. You can make wonderful parts on it. Um, but I mean, I, I think back to, I think when Grimsmo moved from his Tormach to his uh, Morisiki, he's like, I can make just as good of parts on the Tormach as I can make on the Morisiki. The only difference is, is I just have to hit cycle start on the Morisiki, whereas the Tormach, I might have to run it, check yeah. it, run it, check it, run it, check it. <laughs> and then I can get there. <laughs> so you know about CA glue kicker, right? Super glue kicker? Like the, the stuff that cures it? Yeah. Yeah. I've tried that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it works except for the problem is that I've run into is with that big plate stuff. If I'm trying to get it lined up on mm. my fixture table, when I, when I do the spray stuff, usually the plates are so big that I can't get it into the middle unless I do the spray on one side and the super glue on the other. And then I have to be straight and the problem with the Tormach is they don't have like a, a, a coordinate offset, like some of the nicer machines, like the some like of the higher rotation? machines. Yeah. No, they have that. You can do that. They do? Yep. How do you do that? Uh, the <laughs> only... <laughs> Are you ready for this? The only way you can do it... Well, I, okay. I'm sure you can do it by G-code. Um, but the easiest way to do it is to post a probing routine from Fusion. Okay. So you can actually... Okay. Because that was my biggest problem, and what took so long was I got, I gave up on that because I could never get it perfectly straight, and so what I would have to do the glue up and have to push it against something and make sure it was good mm-hmm. straight. And even if I did the spray around the edges, it wouldn't cure the center. Yeah, ask me how I figured that out. <laughs> <laughs> I've thrown a few plates, um, and so I just gave up on trying to speed up that process, and I would just put the glue down and I'd grab a bunch of scrap material and pile it up on the machine and let it sit for 15 minutes at minimum to make sure it was all cured. So I wouldn't throw any plates. And so I mean, just for me. And like I said, I'm sure there's better ways to do stuff than the way I've tried it. Um, But I just, I just felt like for the, the money versus the time investment, it just wasn't penciling out. So I literally, like right before I got on this call with you, I set up a part with the, the super glue method. Uh, except I, instead of having the the tape, I made a, I, I don't know, fixture plate is the right word or arbor, but I don't know. I have a, like a grid plate that mm-hmm. you, that has like little channels cut in it that gives the super glue extra, extra teeth. And mm-hmm. I just do metal to metal on there. Um, how do you clean it up when you're done? Do you just use like an acetone acetone? Yeah. And except, (laughs) so I, you know, I, I put kicker on the part and the super glue on the fixture and I, I stuck it on there the first time 
And for some reason, I was like, oh, I whacked down with hammer to make sure that it is set. And as soon as I hit it with the hammer, it popped off. It was like, oh, yeah, super glue doesn't like impact. I don't know why I did that. That was dumb. It was already cured. And so then I had to go clean it off again and, you know, very carefully line it up the second time. But yeah, (laughs) (laughs) I would have had that part done if I hadn't whacked that with a hammer for no reason. Now, now the super glue tape method is magical. Um, I, I think it is an amazing way to hold parts, and I've used it to great success. Um, it's it's just the speed element of it. What I never was able to, at least until now, if I can actually do the coordinate offset, um, where I could just slap it down, figure out where my zero is, and then machine it in that orientation. Um, that makes it, that would make it a lot easier than what I was doing. You have the Tormach probe on your Tormach, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Do you have any accuracy issues with that? I have, but I've been able to fix all of the accuracy issues. And I've actually, oh my goodness, I have, so I bent the probe at one point. Okay. Um, into like a U shape almost. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm not going to ask. I, and and I busted the little metal ball on the end off of it. And then that was the only way I had for indicating things in. And so I bent it back straight and super glued the ball back on. <laughs> and I actually was able to use the grub screws on the top uh-huh. and get it re-zeroed in to where it actually was measuring accurate parts with that really poorly held together looks awful probe and i used that for a couple weeks until a new probe tip came in mm-hmm. um so needless to say i have gotten really really good at getting the probe dialed in because i have done it like 20 times because i've had errors with the probe not reading right and so I set it up and I'm like, okay, I'm good. And then I start getting wonky parts for XYZ reason. And I check my probe. Oh, there's something wrong. Oh, I set it up wrong. Let me try this. Oh, I think I'm on. I'm more accurate than I was last time. Anyways, I've gone through that cycle so many times that I finally got to the point where I can actually get it dead set zero and know the size of the ball at the end and know that it's in the right spot and... Also, one thing on those Tormox, or on any on any of them, not not just the Tormox, but I have a scratch mark on the one of the dog bones, and I know that that's where my probe's got to go in on that because if I do it 180 degrees, it'll be off a couple of tenths on the underside. Huh. I wonder if that's some of my problem. I, so I yeah, I did a part um, yesterday. Where I had like, my part was like an inch and not three quarters, like an inch and three eighths tall. And my tallest end mill was an inch. And so I had to do a flip so that I could machine it from both sides so I could do the full profile. And like, it's fine. This is for my robot. Like it's going to be sandblasted and powder coated. Like I knew there was going to be some mismatch there, but it was a lot more mismatch than I expected. Um it was probably 10,000 and it's like, oh, I wonder if this is my probe. It's probably my probe. So in my experience, um, there's a couple gotchas with the probe. One is it's not perfectly set up in the beginning. 
So if your grub screws and your whole like getting it actually centered, it it can the way it's on there is you got the the part that goes up into your spindle and then your probe and it's held together on like a like a it's kind of like a four jaw chuck with yes with, exactly with set screws yeah. exactly and so um, if that's not perfectly set up centered um, you're kind you're you're in trouble from the get go second thing that I've had happen quite often is that the probe tip it's just a little bit loose in the actual screws. And so you have to, I, I always crank it down and I think I got some Loctite on it now to make sure it's fully seated. So that probe tip doesn't have any wiggle between it and the probe. And so, and then the last thing is making sure that you're always inserting the probe, the exact same orientation on the exact same dog bone each time. And so I took a file and shaved off, one of the dog bones a little bit just on the outer side, just to scratch it up some. That way I know that that's the dog. I used to Sharpie it, but that kept wearing off with the stuff. So I just scratched it up just a little bit on the outside. That way I know that's the, and I, and I've got my probe set to where the name matches up with that scratch marks because I've reset the probe so many times. That way I always know that that's how my probe goes in. And, and I've, I've, probed on my um on my jaws or on my vice in my machine and then checked it two or three days later um and it's be within a couple of tenths of what i measured the first time and 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 before before i did all of those different things like historically i would be within a thou or two and so i went from a thou or two of accuracy over a couple of days down to like tenths just by fixing a couple of different things here and there. Okay. I'll just go through the dial in process with mine again. Um, I I'm now that I'm sitting here thinking about it, it's like, Oh, I haven't even checked that since I moved the machine. <laughs> Maybe I should check that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also don't know if I've been consistent about which way I put it in. Yeah. Yes. There's, there's some things you can check and, You've used the I I didn't know they had this until I did was digging into it because I was doing it all manually. But on the probe setup page, they actually have a, a a a deal for making sure you're on center, which makes it a lot easier. Um, I did not understand what that tool did the first time that I tried to dial one in, and then I think I watched a, a I watched a tutorial on YouTube and I was like, oh, that's way easier than you know trying to do it with an indicator or whatever. I, I would what I was doing before I had that was I would uh, I would probe against my against my vice and I would label my screws one two and three I was doing mm-hmm. the exact same thing that that thing did but I had like a, a piece of paper or something and I would yeah. just know that you know my one was my zero point and then I'd measure two and three in relation to one and if it was high I'd go in or out and if it was low I'd do the inverse and. Eventually, I found that tool, and I was like, oh, this is much easier, much quicker. Uh, do you have, like, a gauge ring or anything that you use to check the functional diameter, or whatever they call it? No, I do not. Um, what I actually did to check that was, <laughs> and I, I don't know if this is, I know this is not the proper way to do it, but it works. Um, I use a gauge block and I know a gauge block is exact or, or not a gauge block, a uh, one, two, three block. And so 
I will probe on the outside and then probe on the outside of the other. And if my measurement's large, then I know that my probe ball is too big. If my measurement's small, my probe ball is too small. And so I'll check it in like the Y until I get it within like a tenth or two. And then I'll go over and check the uh, X in relation to that. And if those two check out and are, are measuring about the same amount of error, I know my ball is pretty much dead on. I, I don't have the, the ring gauge. I used to do it with a half inch end mill holder, like a set screw holder. So I was like, eh, it's got to be a pretty precise bore. And I think it actually worked pretty well. That was back in my old Tormach where I had the uh, Drewtronics probe. And now I actually did buy a used gauge ring off of eBay and I have mm. three magnets stick, stuck to the bottom of it. And so I can just stick it down to a metal surface and yeah. have it measure itself. Yeah. I, I tried using a bunch of different tools that I had that were circular, and but none of them were accurate enough that that was one of those other area problem areas that I kept running into where I set everything up. It all be perfect. And then I'd realize that the ball was the wrong diameter, but the, the thing that was the most accurate for me was using the one, two, three block that got it pretty much spot on because it was something that was ground in a known dimension that I could reference. I can do that as a test when I do mine. Yeah. Though to be fair with my old mill um, and doing it off of the tool holder, that mill had 13 thou of uh, backlash. <laughs> oh no. So yeah, it, the, the, the probe was the least of my worries. Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot of backlash. Yeah. But I mean, if you have, if you have your backlash back lash compensation set properly, in theory, it shouldn't be a problem, but, or not as big of a problem, but. Yeah, it's still a bit of a problem. But like, I gave it to the guy who bought it with a new set of ball screws. So, mm-hmm. like, it just needed to be. And actually, it was only in the Y. The X axis was fine. The Y axis. So, I gave him a new Y axis ball screw with the mill and he replaced it. And that mill's making parts. So, hey, that's what matters. I mean, with the, with, with the right parts, they're, they're phenomenal machines for what they are. Um, I've, I've made some really, awesome parts that I'm extremely proud of on that thing. So have you run half inch tools in yours? I've only ever gone as big as three eighths. I've run three inch tools. Okay. <laughs> have you run <laughs> a like a solid mill. carbide a half mill. inch? Uh, the face mill. The largest, the largest carbide solid carbide tool I've run is I ran a, a half inch um, long reach in mill, hmm. it, it was like almost four inches of reach Gosh, on a half okay. inch tool. Um, talk about tool deflection. That yeah. one was a that one was a fun one, um, but it worked. I made I made good parts. So I had a I had a uh, it was a U a U bracket where the legs of the U were like three inches tall. Mm-hmm. and it was a custom size, and I couldn't find any U-channel stuff that worked, so I had to make it out of a solid block. Okay. And um, so, yeah, I had to get like a, a three-and-a-half to four-inch long-reach, half-inch end mill to machine that out with. So I'd go down with the the 
my normal end mills as low as I could. Yeah. And then I do finish up with the, the long reach and that came out really good. I've always kind of like, I, it was probably from John Saunders. They at one point said like Tormox do really well with a three eighths inch. And it's like, mm-hmm. okay, I just three eighths inches my max. Um, and the only, the only half inch tool I've tried is I have a very short stubby half inch ball that I use for inside fillets on my trays. Yeah. I, w- I would not recommend half inch for anything other than like aluminum and plastics. Okay. Um, that's all I've ever used it on. And um, like I've used three eighths on some stainless stuff and it is borderline. Like I, I try to use quarter inch on stainless as my max most of the time. Um, okay. Um, on steel, three eighths is still pretty good. Um, but there again, you know, quarter inch tooling is I have no issues with like pretty much any material that I can get away with, like any material with a quarter inch tool, the Tormach can typically handle, um, three eighths, uh, your mild steels are okay. Your stainless steels I've done, but it's, um, not ideal most of the time um with the exception of i have a two inch face mill that i've used on stainless um and running that because it's such low rpm um mm-hmm. at least for the one i was using um i actually got an amazing finish with it and i was okay. i was very happy with that but like when i ran my i actually went, i went through i think it was eight eight three eight eight three eight inch end mills try saying that really fast <laughs> um and, and on one job and they just kept chipping and chattering and exploding on me because yeah. there was just so much vibration and like i was i would either taking such a light cut that i was rubbing or i was taking enough cut to actually form a chip but it was uh vib- it was chattering because it was not rigid enough and so when i jumped down to quarter inch all my problems went away yeah, I use three eighths inch on aluminum all the time, but it's oh, yeah. aluminum. Yeah. Um I I like the Lakeshore variable flute, like polished gullet, three eighths inch aluminum end mill. Mm-hmm. That's one of my favorites at this point. Yeah. Um I've actually I, I like my three eighths in my aluminum, but I found that I can push my quarter inch to remove almost the exact same amount mm. of material as my three eighths inch before because my three eighths inch I start running out of horsepower. Uh, So my, I have a horsepower limitation with the three eighths and I have a tool limitation with the quarter inch, but I can reach, but they, they both stop at about the same material removal rate. So I'm out, I'm, I'm out about the limit on the quarter inch for uh, how much it can, the tool can take. um, But I'm at the machine limitation on the three eighths side. And I'm sure that you could probably play with those numbers. I mean, I think, I think I'm around three and a half cubic inches to four cubic inches on aluminum. But I think Saunders got up to almost six cubic inches with like the sheer hog. Um, But I have not been able to get that high yet. I have been closer to six with the, um, the Lakeshore carbide three eighths inch aluminum rougher. They call it like the Taz. Um, mm-hmm. You can get pretty good material removal rates with that. The only the problem I ran into is I don't have flood coolant hooked up yet, 
and like eventually you on my machine i just chip weld yeah um but i i can ramp into stock at like a 15 degree angle with that thing really it's awesome yeah it's great I, I've, I've been using the kinemetal core 5 okay for a lot of it and and i love that thing that thing's a beast but um it's probably the extra two flutes in there um mm-hmm. it just requires a lot more power and so I, I start running out of horsepower around the three, three and a half cubic inch mark with yep. that tool. And I know when you decrease your, the amount of flutes you have, you, you need less power, which is yes. why the shear hog can, can take so much out because it's just one flute. Yep. So. Well, we should probably get wrapped up here. Um, just quickly, do we want to talk about like what your plans are for the next week? Anything quick you can address here and then I'll go. Um, I think we're going to try to go to our first gun show. Ooh, uh, as a vendor. So, yeah. Yeah. So if we can get, if we can get our card cases in, uh, we're working on some challenge coins and a few other products that we've been working on in the back end, along with some, um, I have a, a MNP shield, um, gen one 40 cal. I'm going to try to do some machine work on this week in Cerakote. Um, and then, um, we got a couple other handguns that we've done some machine work too, and some Cerakote work too, and we can set up a little booth and try to get our name out. I'm kind of, I'm trying to use the, the gun stuff in this area to find people that need machine work done besides the gun stuff. It's almost okay. like a form of advertising. Yeah. Um, cause like there's, there's, when you're in the Northwest corner of Arkansas, there's a lot of gun guys in this mm-hmm. area and, if I can find some gun guys that are in the purchasing departments of some bigger companies and it's like, Oh, Hey, you know, you really like your gun. We also have this that we can do. You know, I'm, that's kind of the, the different way of advertising I'm trying to do. Uh, in fact, um, I was just talking to a local guy and he said that the guy that used to do all this machine work um, just got hit up for some production stuff or some job shop stuff. And uh, is basically swamped with that and can't do any gun stuff right now, and so that's why he found me. So okay, cool. It's like it's like that's what <laughs> I want to do. <laughs> <laughs> so let's so. see. Coming up on the docket for me, uh, I need to finish my uh, carabiner tester robot, mm-hmm. and really the big motivation behind this robot but just besides the curiosity of knowing how long my care are going to last is i want to get one really nice gif for my kickstarter campaign that's the number one reason i'm building this robot i'm trying to make it really nice and pretty and like visually nice. striking for the for the gif mm-hmm. and with that i want to do a couple other uh videos or gifs that i can use for advertising yep um I'm I'm trying to come up with ideas, but I want at least four ads that I can push out for the during the campaign. I have I figured I can do the testing robot. I thought of another one where I could um, float away a carabiner on balloons to show that it's lightweight. Could you repurpose your air cylinder to also do a pull test? Figure out how much they can pull apart. It takes to pull them apart. Um. I suppose I would need to put like some sort of scale in there and my air cylinders, yeah. you know, this big, but yeah. Um, yeah. 
though but the the pull strength on these is not outrageous like it's good enough for your keys i'm literally yeah. calling it the not for climbing carabiner because mm-hmm. i don't want people to expect it that like it's a mountaineering device like yeah it, it's for your keys it'll hold your keys don't expect to be able to hang from it <laughs> yes but it would be it would still be kind of funny to be like show a pull test and then like have the weight be like 30 pounds or something yeah <laughs> and it's like not for climbing tested <laughs> confirmed or something <laughs> yeah i one of the things I, I've learned over the last couple of weeks is a new editing software called DaVinci Resolve. Mm-hmm. And it has the ability to do a lot more like motion graphics and like funky video composition kind of stuff. And I'm going to try to find a way to to work that in some of my ads. Like I figured one thing I could do is I could just have like my hand on a green screen, like opening and closing the carabiner. Mm-hmm. And then I could like um, change the green screen out to be like, look, it's in Paris. Now it's, you know, climbing Mount Everest. Now it's in space. Now it's on an Aztec pyramid and just, I don't know. I thought that might be cool. Kind of inspired by the, um, Oh, what's it called? The Casey Neistat has a, a short video that he did for Nike. Uh, he has this really cool shot of him, like running across, like him running across and then they edit him out into being in a bunch of, Oh, this is, terrible description yeah yeah i well but. i i've seen other videos that are like that like uh i saw one guy who did like a backflip and every time he landed he was in a different location type type yeah. deal same idea um like he took a, a trip around the world and he recorded himself running in all of the different countries mm-hmm. and then um spliced those together so it's like he was running across the street and background i could do that with a carabiner it was the long story short yep Yep. Anyway, do you want to bring us out? Uh, yeah. For for those of you who have stuck with us through our uh, our first podcast, we thank you for for hanging on. It was a, it was a long one, but once we get talking, uh, it's kind of hard to stop. <laughs> we we both enjoy what we do, and um, as for for me, uh, Harrison and AJ signing out. We uh, we hope you'll come back and. Follow us as on our journeys. Bye. (laughs) Yeah, see you.